Hello and welcome to Bear Academy. I'm your host Bear, a UX designer who lives in Auckland, New Zealand. Out of nearly 100 countries, New Zealand has been ranked the best at responding to the COVID-19 outbreak, based on the latest report from Lowy Institute, an independent think tank in Australia. During the whole COVID fighting process, the NZ COVID Tracer app took a very important part. The NZ COVID Tracer app was formally launched on 20 May 2020. As of 27 January 2021, there are already 2,496,000 users registered on NZ COVID Tracer app. Which equates to 61% of the adult population of New Zealand. Millions of people in this country use the app to scan, record, and save lives on a day-to-day -day basis. Since Bluetooth launched on 17 December 2020, 859. Thousand and three hundred sixty-nine devices have activated this function. The app was developed and delivered by Rush, an Auckland-based digital agency, which only took six weeks from concept to launch. That was amazing. As a designer, I think the opportunity of being involved of this project. Is once or twice in a lifetime, you can actually build something to help saving people's life. What are the stories behind the scene? Who are the people doing the design of the app? In this episode of Bear Academy podcast, I have the pleasure of talking to Stephen Horner, Chief Design Officer at Rush, and Chloe Fong, Lead Product Manager. At Rush, if you are keen to know more about the team behind the NZ COVID Tracer app, please stay tuned. Where do I start?、Um, I was born in Hong Kong,、um, moved to the UK when I was seventeen. I studied、uh, studied industrial design, so、mm -hmm. that is like、um, and. Decided after my last year and a year of working that I wanted to go into digital.、Um, so I started as a product manager, as junior. Not a great place to start because I had senior devs and senior designers all wanting different things, and then a client wanting different things. So that was quite hard. And、uh, luckily, because a lot of the stuff with industrial design blends into UX, things like affordances and understanding how things work,、um, that.、Um, The head of UX there took me under her wing, and then I became a UXer. Came to New Zealand two years ago as a UXer, and I have transitioned into product management、um, recently, like a year ago. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's quite an interesting career transition, like from industry design to、uh, UX, and then to product product management. So yeah. It feels like,、um, sounds like me.、Uh, sounds to me, it's a, a ideal transition. 
because that can give you the different um, experience for 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 different perspective of of the product. Yeah. So, uh, Stephen, how how about you? Yeah, sure. Um, where to begin? Uh, I guess my first interest in design uh, kind of started in high school. So. Mm-hmm. Had a really great teacher. She was sharing all this inspiring stuff like David Carson and interesting typography and things like that. Mm. Um, so there's a point where I wasn't too sure whether I was going to get into uh, architecture or graphics, but I ultimately decided to get into graphics. Um, so yeah, the qualification I did completed that down in Wellington, and mm. then thought naively that be jobs designing, you know, band posters and band album covers. Yeah. Um, turns out that's not as big a market as I first thought. Uh, so, yeah, a series of fortunate um, occurrences essentially led me to doing digital d- design. Um, I guess I really loved all the possibilities of, of that, the fact that you could have a dialogue with a person who would hmm. um, use this experience. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I guess I've been quite fortunate um, that that career uh, kind of figured out that was my love quite early on, and that's taken me from Wellington to a stint in Frankfurt. I was there for a year, um, and then working in the UK for s- six and a half years. Right. And there really started to mature um, from someone who really loved the craft of it, you know, creating like a beautiful thing for someone to to experience, mm-hmm. to thinking about um, who is the human that is going to use this, what are the jobs that they're trying to get done and what are the pain points that they feel now. So getting a lot more, um, I guess, focused on the customer around that time. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I guess around, well, when it must have been 2017, um, my then uh, wife and I, uh, had kind of reached the point where we'd decided that we'd love to come home. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very excited to ensure that that felt like a step forward rather than a step back. And then, um, yeah, through through um, speaking with people and a uh, close colleague and an old old friend, um, got talking to to Rush. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I've been at Rush for the past three. Uh, three years. That's really been a journey to build a design team that is the equal um, of the technical talent that was here when I I joined. Um, and yeah, I guess over the past three years we've done some pretty interesting and varied and often challenging things. Yeah, sounds um, definitely a step forward. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. It's been yeah, so it's been a uh, lot of fun. Yeah. And here we now are. Right. And uh, can I say that? is that uh, in the early stage of your career it's more related to UI design it's more like related to graphic and pixel uh, perfection but then just uh, ex- explore the possibilities and also like uh, how it can how the design can uh, impact a, a larger scope can I say it like that? Yeah that's that's correct I guess it was a journey of getting more mature and how I viewed it was very much at the start I'm going to create a beautiful object and sometimes um, you're almost doing that for your portfolio rather than for the person and then over yeah. time you kind of start to think about what is the impact that uh, that this work is having um, getting more focused on the person and the goals of, of, of the client as well right yeah um, 
Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Because um, that re- reveals a lot of uh, possible uh, topics uh, to cover. But as uh, as mentioned, this um, uh, this chat is more around um, COVID tracer app. Uh, but before we jump to uh, to the product, I, I found there are. Uh, a, a common uh, thing uh, for for you guys. You both uh, have the work and live experience in U- UK, like uh, you work and live in UK for a while and then move to New Zealand. And also, like during this stage, um, UK is still uh, fighting COVID in a hard way. So, what do you guys think? Uh, like from uh, from personal perspective. What we did and what the UK, uh, what what UK is doing. Um, um, how how do you think? What do you think about uh, in, in a general way? Like what we've got in uh, in um, here in New Zealand as a uh, as the advantage, but also like uh, some difficulties from from those people are fighting in in UK. So I'm not sure if I described the uh, question correctly, but it's just a personal opinions based on you guys' experience? I think in New Zealand, we had the privilege of the, when the outbreak happened in what December. Yeah. Um, the first traces of it, it was summer our time, and summer is um, better because people are outdoors. There's the sun, you're not cooked yeah. up inside, it's not cold, and there's no flu, so your immune system is better. Yeah. But also the island nation, well, the UK is also an island nation. Um but we got to learn from what the best strategies were around the world in order to implement the border closures early and to implement the lockdowns early. Mm-hmm. Um, the UK didn't have that. Um, still got a lot of family from the UK and my wife's from the UK. So um, I think there, there wasn't that luxury in the UK. So um, that I think there's like... I assume there's some sort of threshold of community outbreak in which you can't eliminate the virus anymore and it's and then you have to switch tack to a controlling the uh, the spread strategy yeah and um i'd say we had the privilege of kind of hindsight um in new zealand and we also had the privilege of getting it a bit later mm-hmm. um and nipping it in the bud early um to do that um yeah and in the uk unfortunately it's a slightly different situation um and I guess the lockdown measures were put put in too late and it really spread so hmm. um but yeah that would be my take it's there's also a larger population to um to reach out to to control and to understand like what people are doing and even if you have the latest knowledge it takes a while for that to filter down to mm-hmm. a larger population yeah um yeah there are a lot, a lot of differences and also like uh, it's really hard to control in in a really complex environment such as UK with uh, uh, like the border all the, all the things around Europe yeah uh, what, what what you got Stephen from from your perspective yeah if I think of the single biggest difference um, in in terms of the way that people um, hmm responded to the pandemic if we leave aside our obvious geographic advantages like it's a lot easier to make our borus uh, to make our border not porous yeah um 
I think it was down to the consistency of comms. Mm. So the communications here felt very clear, um, yeah. and they were pretty con- consistent the the whole way through. Um, if you recall, it feels like a very long time ago now, <laughs> but when the UK started, there was originally an intention to go for a herd immunity approach mm. um, and then yeah. they had to pivot from that when they had uh, more data as as to what was happening um, but um, and, and unfortunately once you've conveyed one thing to people it's sometimes hard to you know turn to turn that ship you have to recall you're trying to influence a large country of, 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 of people yeah. um, and I'm, I've kind of been like stunned and impressed by the degree of compliance mm. here in, in, in general yeah. Um, and yeah it's really subtle to understand what that is whether um, I think that yeah, the communication was definitely part of it the clarity there um, conveying why it was important for, for people to, to do certain things um, and is there a cultural difference there? I'm not sure. Is there a higher trust in the institution? Um, Chloe, you might be able to describe that a little more. I didn't really interact too much with UK politics when I was there. I think it also was... Um, there was quite a few things going on in the UK. There was Brexit happening. Um, yeah. A new PM was recently... Like, Boris was recently appointed. Um, and there was yeah so politically it wasn't there were loads of and there's loads of different like departments and parties involved um so yeah and there's i guess that would be my take just the more people and that basically when covid started nobody really knew what the best plan was the more people that get involved (laughs) you get more opinions and there's different strategies and yeah and I think there's also a lot of edge cases and like I see the amount of edge cases that even our QA team comes up with when we when the app goes out for a release like I can't imagine the amount of edge cases in the UK because of the population because of different environments um, and yeah so just thinking of all the different scenarios, all the different interpretations of how you could um, interpret like a policy or a law or something a politician has said, um, just times it by the population there. You get loads of different interpretations and loads of yeah. different implementations at even different local levels. Different towns might have different thoughts. Um, and I think another key thing is the population density in the UK and mm. urban areas mm. is it is quite a lot higher like if you if one in 5,000 people have uh, one in 500 people have um, coronavirus um, and you live in central London you're probably going to come across 500 people in like a four hour window whereas in New Zealand you it would be quite hard to do so um everyone's in their cars there's not a lot of people walking about the buses aren't packed it just that density really makes that transmission mm. that much yeah higher. that's a really good point because um yeah the, the reason i'm asking this question like what's the difference between here and the uk it's just um, um i'm just 
kind of like thinking from a product perspective,、um, what if we're doing this in the same project in UK and the the result or in other countries such as maybe US or other uh, uh, more challenging countries? So what will be the results? And it depends on the 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 the, the cultural difference and like. Population、uh, density, something that we might not able to change, but something could be like、uh, if we can think about that and、uh, and carefully designed for for that uh, for that uh, for that、uh, perspective, maybe it can give a different result. So, like currently, I think、um, one thing really surprised me is that how、uh, here everyone have. Has the trust for the government,、uh, for, for the government and for the for the experts. Like when Springberg, Springberg,、uh, Springfield,、uh, when when the professionals、uh, talked about、um, about how we can cope with COVID, or uh, when uh, when we see a poster like "What's the instruction on that?" People、um, people will do the right things, but. In some other countries, or some sometimes uh, maybe um, it's got slightly different. But th- yeah, that's that's one of my point. And、uh, the other thing,、um, I think what is quite uh, w- like uh, Stephen mentioned that people、uh, probably is the、um, like uh, how we、uh, like the consistency of the of the comms and also like something. Related to people,、uh, one thing I'm thinking from、um, design perspective is that maybe the user's behavior or the, maybe the if we、uh, if we use a UX per- terminology like the、uh, the user personas are different are different from those countries.、Uh, for example, like here in New Zealand, maybe we have、um, a, a low tech savvy user, like they they are not. Uh, as familiar to the apps as as other countries, maybe just as a, as an assumption, but they have more trust on the、uh, the authority or on the professionals. So things like that maybe is uh, is uh, is the difference, but just as an assumption. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that also puts into.、Um, Some of the product decisions that we have to make,、um, I think it's different. Will probably be applying to the UK as well.、Um, a lot of the product decisions we have to make is weighing up the benefits of solving a big problem for a thousand users or solving a medium problem for five hundred thousand users. Yeah, and that's sort of a, a trade-off that we have to make.、Um, mm. And figuring out then what is priority? Is it solving? Is it solving a very big problem for like two thousand users? What you have to make, and with I think with the COVID app in general,、um, because it's for such a large user base, it's quite、um, those decisions that make that you make can really affect lives. And the other thing with government apps is you need to ensure quality. If a person that isn't that tech savvy or maybe doesn't have the newest phone, like you can't not support them. You have、yeah. to. Be able to help them, and it—it's the government, like, and it's the responsibility as a state, as a government, as the people making the app, to ensure the safety of New Zealand, regardless of 
um, like can you afford enough data to use it can you afford the latest phones which is quite different to commercial apps that I've mm-hmm. worked in it's easy for a company to say we only support this um, yeah. the latest iPhones the latest Samsungs but we won't support like a so in terms of design I think we'd have to we had to think about um, how we can achieve sort of equity mm-hmm. with Bluetooth exposure there are rules set by Apple and Google to say what devices they support um, which that we are not in control of but we know that everyone should be able to scan a poster if you have a camera on your phone essentially um, and that we support a large amount of devices for that so that's some of the kind of considerations coming into the project I didn't really think about because my background is mainly working with like corporations um, and yeah that's quite a hard like that's quite a hard challenge that we have lots of debates about do we prioritise this epic or that epic or mm-hmm. how does that happen so yeah I would say that's a unique challenge to the COVID response apps um, particularly given the the time pressure yeah. around them right because to achieve that support to you know have all those different platforms and pieces of hardware work on it um, that's a trade off too so yeah that is definitely challenging was it the the major reason that we pick uh, QR code scan as the as the key feature rather than the Bluetooth um, uh, feature at the first first step? I would say the Bluetooth feature was not out when we first launched. Was it? Did Apple release by then? Um, I can't recall the exact timing. I know when like development started on that piece of work, mm. there's there's the Bluetooth effort that had come out of Singapore and the implementation of that. Yeah, uh, I believe it happened in as- Australia as well. Um, so we did some testing with that, but there were some pretty deep concerns we had mm. um, because with it not being uh, on the Apple. Google standard, where it was kind of built into the operating system, and you had a lot more um, c- confidence that that would work. Yeah. The approach taken in Singapore really relied, uh, in the case of an Apple phone, the app being kept in uh, in in the foreground that that whole time. Mm. Um, and from our experience with Bluetooth p- protocols in 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 the past, um, it can be a pretty challenging piece of tech to to work with yeah um so at that stage it was really of the strategies that were taking place to to build bluetooth um without that google apple framework right um didn't really feel like a viable option yeah and Stephen, do you do you remember like the early discussions around uh around the app (laughs) i believe there should there are uh should be a lot of uh, hot discussions around like what's the direction and what's the uh, feasibility and uh, tech dependencies around that. Could you share something around like? Those? Yeah, I mean, maybe to talk about like the design process in yeah. general, right? Yeah, yeah. So we're ultimately trying to align these these three things of like what does the customer need? Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, the interesting challenge of uh, the ultimate customer really being the the contact tracer, yeah. right? So all of this effort is essentially to help everyone in, the, in this country help contact tracers work faster, 
because the faster we can trace contacts, the quicker we can contain any outbreaks, mm. and um, which means you know we can all be in the present context that we're in now, we all, where we all get to go about our daily lives. Yep. Um, so it's really understanding how could we equip those who want to help with the tools in, in order to to do so. And that was really about understanding, okay, what is the thing that will help speed up contact tracing most? Mm-hmm. Then thinking of all, all those things that are possible, uh, what is the overlap of what is technically possible? Mm-hmm. Um, and then what is feasible for the business that, that we're dealing with? Like what is viable for them to operate as a organization? Yeah. So can I see it's like uh, at first you uh, define the how might we <laughs> questions around um, solving the contact tracer uh, as the priority for uh, like the, the like the key uh, key question for for the for the users and then uh, work on different ways too. Yeah. So now that you've jogged my memory a bit, yeah, thinking back, it was we got to like quite a clear point of view where the where the R. Mm-hmm. Value was two two point five, right? Mm. So if you think that was the rate at which uh, uh, COVID was mm. starting to spread here, so yeah. it was ba- basically for every one case that caught it, yeah, um, two point five people. Was, I think it was some, something like that. So w- we were quite clear. Okay, um, the goal of all of this effort is to get the R below one because mm. at that point the outbreak will start to die out. So yeah, with that we started to think about what are the um, key strategies that the contact tracing teams will be working with and the public health um, response will be working with in order to drive that down. Mm-hmm. Um, and the advice coming out of the WHO at that time was two kind of clear pillars, which was test, 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 and then um, trace contacts, contact them, and get them to stay home. Yeah. So those were the two areas that we started to focus on. Um, and then with the efforts happening with with the DHBs, the confidence got high that in terms of the test, 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 they were doing a good job of being able to solve that that problem, um, which got us clear on like what is the role that consumer tech can 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 play. Mm-hmm. So how can we equip um, anyone with a smart home, uh, anyone with a smartphone, to help contact tracers work faster? Yeah, mm. that's hard. I think, uh, and also Chloe, you mentioned that uh, everything needs to consider like a large population, a large amount of people with user group. So I guess the accessibility is uh, it's much larger than commercial projects. Yeah. What 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 do you thought about that? So I'd say that in the at the start of the project when everything was go go go. Um, the accessibility was actually quite low. Like scanning posters inherently was um, a barrier for people who have visual impairment, for instance, um, mm. where if you can't see oh. a poster, you yeah. can't scan a poster. And we did hear back from um, members of the community um, with that. And when the lockdown sort of relaxed a bit and we had more time we've been trying to iteratively improve the accessibility within the app and now with bluetooth as well um then that's an extra barrier i think it was susie that said basically everything within the app so the poster scanning and also within contact tracing the keeping distance wearing a mask bluetooth enf kind of has a swiss cheese effect Mm -hmm. where 
it's not a one silver bullet solution in which it's the perfect solution for everyone because that doesn't exist. Yeah. We're looking at stacking different solutions together so the disadvantages of one solution become is covered by another solution um, that might have other disadvantages but all of them stacked together becomes the most bulletproof yeah. way to stop the spread and to keep New Zealand safe and to help contact tracers mm. um, trace as um, as many people as possible. Yeah. That sounds like a cost sorting <laughs> challenge for different uh, disadvantage, advantage, and how, how did you guys do the priority priority for for those for those features or those um, like uh, my guess is that uh, when uh, when each feature had, uh, had um, was proposed, there could be like uh, yeah uh, the benefit, but could be like. Maybe people people can't see it, can't see the poster or things like that. So, how, how do you guys prioritize those 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 features, those um, needs? So it depends on the um, goal at the moment, like of the moment. So during an outbreak, the goal would be helping contact tracers as soon as possible. Right, yeah. um, with less of an outbreak, we are ensuring that um, users are keeping a um, 14 day diary so that if a contact tracer you wish, wishes to contact them so it really de- um, they, they have a diary to mm-hmm. to show for so I guess in different stages of the pandemic experience <laughs> I don't really know if you can say that yeah. the goals um, change hmm. and based on what we're trying to achieve as an ultimate goal we look at so what are the different solutions that could achieve this goal and um, yeah so we, we kind of prioritise based on that um, so it might be anything from increasing user like for example more engagement might be increasing user motivation so what solutions can we build towards that how do we increase the ability for people mm. to uh, scan easily or to easily turn bluetooth how, um, so I think it's motivation, ability, and how do we remind people at the right times? Like, what are the triggers for people to create that action? This is the current framework I'm thinking about and using at the moment. Um, and using that and try to be a, as objective as possible. So looking at how many people will this reach? What sort of user groups are we reaching? People who are already... Um, scan a bit, but we want them to scan more. Are we reaching people who have... Um, completely abandon the app um, because there's no community outbreak are we trying to incentivize them to then open the app again and use it mm. um, so we kind of look at the goal and we look at which sort of segments and target groups that we want to go for and we go down that avenue of prioritization mm-hmm. and also how much effort it would take so cost is one of the things that we need to think about like how long mm. will it take to build this feature is it then good value for money if we believe and we're quite confident that will reach a lot of people and have a high impact um, yeah. then maybe we can put a lot of effort into this um, or if we're not that confident or it doesn't reach that many people or the impact's low then we can only afford to put a little bit of time and a little bit of the team's time into it so that's sort of like it's a bit like juggling hmm. um it's not as straightforward as like let's put together an equation there's a lot of back and forth and also it's a lot of opinions Mm. Um, so it's about how to listen to every opinion listen to the advantages disadvantages and have an open discussion about actually what is the best strategy forward yeah 
and that was definitely you know done in partnership with the client team like mm-hmm. understanding from the MOH team like the feedback coming back from contact tracers what the pain points that mm. they were trying to solve for that really drove quite a lot of the product roadmap to understand you know if the goal is to help them do their job faster mm. what is the most helpful thing that we can do next yeah so that kind of um, get us to that quite simple structure, right where it's about going in order to contact people it's helpful to have their contact info mm-hmm. so that was that was a big drive at the uh, early stages then you know, the ability to understand where people have been and who they've seen so the combination of QR code posters um, and the Bluetooth protocol yeah. kind of helps speed up both of those things yeah. Um, so yeah anything that gives contact, tra- uh, contact tracers time back during an outbreak context that's um, it was a, a question that was like repeatedly asked <laughs> in, in order to go what is the most valuable thing we should do next mm. that sounds like you guys have a crystal clear goal for uh, across the across the team that everyone can understand like what's the what's the goal for for this stage because sometimes um, I feel uh, in other project some some of my personal experience when when uh, different people working a large project uh, project or a large uh, product like people will have too attached to their responsibility and maybe forgot about the whole picture so some sometimes like for example like if I'm a designer probably I'm too attached to my design and really would like to push this as the final version but because of some um, tech dependencies or something like maybe it's not the best for the for the whole project, for for the uh, from the larger priority. So yeah, but sounds like you, you guys already got a solution. Like always mention the key goal for for the project, so everyone can understand. I guess there are a lot of workshops and yeah, discussion meetings around that. Around mm. those. And I think it's the alignment strong on 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 the goal, right? Yeah. But the debate is probably in all the different ways in, in terms of how. Mm-hmm. Right, so yes, we want to help contact racers go faster, which is the most appropriate thing to do next in order to help them do do so. So be able to drive that, um, I guess, the am- ambiguity down to really understand which of these things will help. Mm-hmm. Um, that's often where the yeah where the work is. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think alignment is key, um, yeah. <coughs> and open conversation is quite key um, yeah. to talk about talk openly and it's not easy to have a crystal clear goal and sometimes we don't have a crystal clear goal it's taken a lot of work it's taken a lot of conversations um, a lot of coaching a lot of um, just wrapping your head around the processes on Ministry of Health and because um, yeah and then actually coming to an alignment and then speaking so everyone on the team like will know the sort of goal that we're trying to achieve um, internally um, I would do a shout out to our Ministry of Health project team because they do a lot of aligning their side as well mm. um, but it's a it's a massive juggle like contact tracers for instance want as much data as possible on the people but there's privacy commissioner and um, we need to keep people's privacy and users want to not have and especially a government app which has connotations to sort of government tracking and things like that so privacy yeah. is 
I guess, something that's super important with everything that we do. So, for example, um, yeah, with the scans, we don't know who scanned and where, um, which also has design impl- implications, right? So if we don't know where people are scanning in, it's hard to solve problems to find out where people are not scanning and mm. make those improvements. So there's a lot of like different trade-offs. There's a lot of different things in the mix, but... Um, yeah, it's uh, it's just an open conversation a lot of the time and just getting that alignment early mm. on what we should do, essentially, to get, like, a win-win scenario for m- most people. <laughs> yeah, that's quite... I'm just quite curious about exactly the, the process of work, like uh, how you guys work with, uh, with designers and developers on the... For example, on launching a new feature or finding the goal, or like what in general way you you guys working? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe um, I can speak to it in broad terms, and then Chloe can kind of break it down a bit more for you. Yeah. So I guess yeah, the practice here we're really seeking to blend the best of human-centered, lean UX, Mm. and agile practices. Yeah. and that's really in order to determine the right thing to build and then build that thing right. Okay. So it comes back to those um, three kind of themes that, that we spoke to as well around how do we find the intersection of like what it is that customers need, um, what is technically feasible, and then what is viable for, for the business. Mm-hmm. So like, a, a catchphrase that we use quite a bit is thinking about, uh, you know, talk how do we design for people, design for answers, and design for the outcomes that we want to see from this? So, but designing for people, that's really understanding, like, who are we who are we trying to solve for? Mm-hmm. What are the jobs they're seeking to get done? Um, what are the pain points that they encounter right now? When we d- design for answers, that's really having that focus around what is the riskiest uh, assumption that we've made or what is the important question that mm-hmm. we sh- sh- should answer yeah. now. Uh, and then that designing for impact um, really keeps us focused on we need to ship things to to the customer. So the designer isn't accountable for the perfect sketch file or the developer isn't accountable for the perfect line of code. Um, everyone on the team is accountable for creating the outcome that ultimately gets to the mm. customer, right? So just having that focus means the trade-offs that take place, mm-hmm. um, which you always uh, have to do under resource constraints and time con- uh, constraints. Yeah. It helps people understand how do we get the best outcome as a team um, as opposed to the best outcome for the piece of the puzzle that I'm currently working on. Yeah. So that's kind of it in general. Maybe Chloe can break it down in a lot more detail. <laughs> I think I like to think of it as more as a football team. Mm. Like your goal is to win that game. It doesn't matter. Like there are different people. There are strikers, there are defenders, there are goalkeepers, there are midfield, and there are wingers. And those are sort of like the designers, developers, QA, product. and But the goal is always the same so it's as a team we work together rather than like Mm. a defender passes to a striker then passes to then scores a goal and then it comes back so we try to think of it as more like on a holistic 
term. Um, so kind of run a scrummy way um, it's, um, of how we do things. We normally um, get some requirements from the client understanding like the goals and if it's not there we ask why until we get to the goals um, and then um, sort of start talking about implementations so and then um, we have input from technical and design um, and also the business context from the client to come up with sort of a very high level like what's the approach mm-hmm. um, we have a discussion um, it's yeah, so it's more of a team effort. So we have refinements, normally high level to start with, just to talk about the context and the goals and different solutions, debate about them. And mm-hmm. then um, then design kind of starts to put together wireframes and um, designs and then um, the architecture technically is sort of thought of and what what are the prerequisites and then we have like a sort of lower level more granular refinement where we do estimations where we write the acceptance criteria together where we look at like um like edge cases and things like that and everyone from the team will contribute to that um Mm -hmm. and then we kind of have like a scopey thing that we bring it into sprint um sprint's relatively new we just started this year on that um and then, yeah, at the end of, say, a two-week sprint, because we don't re- our release cadence is actually monthly, but our sprints are shorter, mm-hmm. we drop the features into UAT that mm-hmm. then gets tested by the client. Um, and then, yeah, and then at the end, before release, we have all the release stuff, but also we normally run a pilot with um, a few hundred uh, um, internal government people so they give us some feedback um Mm. we look at if there's anything really big that we need to solve and then once it's out there we then have um support team that feedback into us as these things are not working can we fix can we either do a hot fix or can we incorporate into the next release um so yeah so aim for getting it done and getting early feedback rather than um, getting it perfect and then pushing it out um, so we are continuously improving on things that we built at the start as well as building in new features mm. yeah, that sounds like a <coughs> great combination of agile and design thinking like uh, identify the question the problem in the early stage some back and forth discussions and then keep working on specific uh, design Coding things like that, and then test it with with your uh, pilot, and also do the U- uh, U- UAT, so user acceptance testing for the audience. Yeah, so um, yeah, I think that's that's really uh, really interesting to to know that, and especially uh, uh, for the question I asked, this one um, quite interesting about like in the early stage of the of the app. Um, I read the case study on uh, on Rush about uh, on Rush website about the, uh, about the app. Is uh, it is that uh, it was launched uh, around May twenty? So um, and roughly take around six weeks for the design development and deliver. So 
how could you guys do such a nap in like in six weeks? Like typically just three sprints, right? If we using agile to measure the the process. So what's the what's what's the story behind it, like Stephen? Yeah, yeah. So um, I guess to take a direct quote, I guess we also decided to go hard and go early. Mm. So. Um, yeah, to rewind back a bit, like based on the news we started to hear from overseas um, and in our networks, we started doing our homework in this space in late February, early March mm. kind of time. So yeah. we kind of started to get an inkling that something was happening. Um, and so, okay, this is this is a trend. This seems like it. Uh, and if you recall that first period it kind of didn't quite seem real like it had this abstract quality to it where that, that's happening overseas mm. but it isn't going to come here so we had a couple of brainstorms and it was almost um, hard to think it was possible right we were going yeah. like this is a speculative brainstorm um, but out of that we identified several opportunities where we felt consumer tech could play a role um, so we've even done some early, early prototyping around uh, around those things, and these were thinking very broadly, right? Like what might be the needs of business, what might be the needs of public health. Um, yeah, there was all like how would you potentially use um, telehealth to treat patients from home? We were, we'd gone like very broad, just thinking about what all the possibilities were within this space. Um, so that meant when we were uh, ultimately engaged by the MOH, we had a good degree of understanding of, of that problem space. Mm-hmm. So the homework had been done to kind of get going very quickly. Mm. Um, and then once in that execution stage, the emphasis on prioritization, ruthlessly de-scoping, like what is the smallest thing we can do to achieve this Story and still get that job done. Yeah. Um, having like constant comms back and forth, so we're in daily stand-ups. Um, I guess the design was happening in a highly iterative way, so you'd very quickly move from you know sketches, typically you know, in someone's spare room at home or in their bedroom or in wherever they were, because you have to recall we're all at home at at uh, this point, and then that would very quickly move into. Figma, mm-hmm. um, yeah, like so Figma was like, sketch. yeah. So we kind of, as a studio, had started the migration to Figma. We supported both stacks at that time, um, but yeah, kind of the right tool for the right time. Like in terms of the the productivity games, uh, the productivity gains, and the ability for the team to all be within the same workspace to see the current. Sp- Status of any work in progress um, that that was super powerful so that would typically be like the first pace that flows would would come in and then everyone could get in there add their feedback from you know so there was a stakeholder feedback coming in there was the the technical team thinking about the edge cases and thinking of maybe a constraint that we hadn't properly solved for Mm. Um, so I think it was just getting those feedback loops really tight yeah. making sure the work was always exposed to the full team uh, and I guess on the human level 
like the whole team being both you know the team we have here at Rush and the team at the MOH being absolutely driven to get the job done like it was whatever it takes so in a typical uh, maybe like a peacetime context right it might have been like a like a three sprint kind of time, time scale mm. um people did significantly more <laughs> than that over that time yeah and yeah like sacrificed quite a quite a lot personally and we should really thank all their families and their partners for making that possible. Like they're all juggling disrupted schedules and there's kids in the background and there's kids on laps and all of that was kind of happening. Um, so yeah, hopefully that gives you a little bit of a sense. <laughs> yeah, of I can totally imagine that, uh, <clears throat> like how hard it is, especially during the lockdown. Everyone need to work from home. But yeah, as you mentioned, that Figma probably a game changer. For the collaboration of designers and developers, and this could be a good topic to to, to go deeper uh, mm-hmm. if, uh, if we have time, like in the, in later stage. Because my personally feel like Figma is a, is one of the greatest tool that we're using uh, in the digital industry. Uh, the other Notion, the Figma, and other 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 tools. Yeah, but also like uh, you mentioned that during the uh, lockdown. Probably everyone worked remotely at, during that stage. How do you think uh, it's make the dip- is is it make any difference from work from office, work from home, or work remotely um, for the for the for the project? So our team still works. It's completely flexible now. Yeah. Um, so there's always every meeting there will be people dialing in. Um, mm. We try to come together every Tuesday just to have one team day where everyone's here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's a sort of like privilege to be in the industry. Like this yeah. industry is the industry that can go remote like that. Mm. And um, there's president for it. There are a lot of companies that work full remote or like we just really need a laptop essentially and a chair mm-hmm. and you can do <laughs> yeah. some work. It's, um, yeah, so compared to other industries like hospitality it's a it's very easy but there there are some like challenges where we have to keep the schedule and meetings um have um make sure that like it's not that people have time to like breathe and stuff and to make sure the agendas are right prepping everything before meeting Mm. um and yeah punctuality i feel like i'm not a punctual person after lockdown I became super punctual. Just <laughs> because yeah. waiting on a call for people just to join is... You yeah. just feel like you're wasting your life. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we were quite fortunate that our our tooling stack yeah. was 100% cloud at, at, at that point as well. Oh. So, and we had a... I don't know if we had a formalised working from home policy at, at, at that point... Um, but we, you know, we did have people who would work from home and dial in prior, but we were largely, you know, we're probably 90% here yeah. um, prior to COVID. So, yeah, you know, all of our, like, we had the project board being exposed in Jira. Um, we decided to migrate into Figma, which was great for sharing work in progress. We'd got, like, video conferencing yeah. happening. So the that the productivity hit 
wasn't what we thought it might be I think was a concern going into it and I remember yeah that first week of lockdown it was almost like pleasantly surprised it's like oh everything's just yeah it's just happening we're fine um <laughs> and yeah I, I I think there's a a cost of being in lockdown for a sustained period of time right like the mm. the cultural capital that you create from you know, being in the same place and those bonds that you form I think that was very important that because mm. the team had the experience of being in a shared space for a long time it made the collaboration from home yeah easier yeah yeah I think it's kind of like one of the silver linings uh, of COVID is it's really accelerate the, the the how we work in, in especially in New Zealand like before that I, I'm personally I'm a, uh, a work remotely believer and um, and especially in digital industry right so uh, this should be it should be flexible but before that not every employee employers um, believe that uh, people can work from home or work remotely but now it's like a common practice for um, for especially in digital industry like every most of the companies uh, get used to it and find some and also we have the right tools maybe we're still waiting for the best tools for remote workers because uh, before that I had a discussion with uh, Jeff Goldfield the, the author mm. of Lean UX, and he also mentioned that um, we have some good tools at this stage for collaboration, like Miro, Jira, Figma, or other tools, Slack, but maybe still waiting for something that can really make the experience of work remotely as the same as, uh, as in person. It could be uh, a great opportunity for for some product companies, but yeah, this could be something we can uh, we can talk about that. But yeah, um, really want to know what your personal um, per, uh, like experience of uh, of handle the the challenge and stress of, of this app of, of this app project. Because um, I just try to imagine if I am the designer for this app and am I. Start to think. Wow, this could be huge because people are using it on daily basis, and uh, it's because it's about health, about safety, about things. Because if I think in a deeper way, it could be quite overwhelmed. So I just want to know that uh, as you guys w- actually worked for the, for the app, wh- what your what your feeling and what what's the experience and how do you mm. cope with the if there, I, I guess there are stress and and maybe ups and downs, frustrations or things like that. But yeah, if you can share something related to this, it will be great. I think um, what joins it all together is the purpose. So the purpose of sort of doing, giving something back, um, knowing that actually not even the best world leaders in the world know what's going on and just taking it with a pinch of salt like having a shared purpose that if one person can be pre-identified before Mm. they spread to another person then that's something that like money can't buy stress can't buy that's something that is um worth doing and i feel like if you have a strong purpose the tolerance for pain 
suddenly mm. increases by a lot. So, um, for example, like working long hours or previously I was on the COVID stuff for the UK, like working reverse hours, mm. um, just knowing that actually the world is in chaos and we're trying our best and it's been sort of been reflected in within our internal team but also within the client's team we we all kind of in it together get stuck in get something out there to the best of your knowledge um mm. give it a go um and ultimately that kind of helps keep you going like yeah. you're doing something and it's a it's a rare opportunity and a privilege to be able to do mm. that you can work for like 30 40 50 years in an industry and never be able to touch something that can save a life or um yeah help prevent someone yeah so that's sort of my personal way of putting it mm. yeah. how about you steven yeah, um, I was just thinking like right back to the very start when Pav stood in a room to Pav's our CEO and um, he kind of spoke about this as we've got the opportunity to save our grandmas, mm. you know, so we're making it, it was a way to make it like very personal and, um, you know, in 2018 we really you know, took, took the effort to clarify like what does Rush stand for and you know what is our company purpose and um, we defined it as you know we design tech to better serve humankind mm. so when the pandemic came along it felt like you know we 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 have to we have to play a role here if that's the thing that we believe to be true um, we have to find a way to 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 help in this situation um, so I think you're right, you know, like the the psychological pressure felt very high, you know, like the it was uh, a, be a big impact on a lot of people. Um, you know, you've got these thoughts going through your mind of, uh, you know, like what does it mean for society? What does it mean for your family? What does it mean for your children? Um, so to the, like the day-to-day experience, I'd say it would be like a roller coaster of feeling, right? Mm-hmm. Like you go yeah. from being incredibly humbled um too excited too anxious <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was like this whole whole spectrum of feeling um but i think the theme that i kind of saw run through everyone was the sense of determination mm. there was this uh there was a resolve to go that's too important a problem um for us not to give us absolutely everything that that we have um i've actually got a nice quote here from one of the designers on 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 the team if, yeah, so if you like i can share that yeah, yeah, that's really um good. yeah so the question you phrased was how did it feel to design a product that can actually save people's lives and marina wrote um looking back it made me appreciate just how fortunate i am i'm fortunate for being able to help new zealand and be able to d- deliver my best and feel confident i did a good job um, it is the best feedback I could ask for, and it is incredibly rewarding. It was also incredibly challenging and incredibly stressful. Um, after all, you want to do your absolute best when you know it could deeply impact uh, such a large amount of people. Fortunately, apps aren't designed in isolation, which is mm. ha-ha, pun, pun intended there, <laughs> but uh, in a team. Uh, and she goes on to say I was fortunate to be working alongside some of the smartest most driven and experienced people I've ever met 
without them and their support it would have been impossible um, having them enabled me to deliver my best it means when I see people using the NZ Cover Tracer app I feel very proud and humbled um, by all of our efforts which I thought sums it up pretty well for everyone on the yeah. team I think yeah yeah, that's really Chris, personally as a designer quite envy the opportunity to to have the to have the opportunity of working in uh, as a in in this mission, you know, like um, being able to to actually save someone's life, or like even just just one. If there's one case was changed by 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 the by the app, it's totally worth it, and it feels like uh, uh, the the story of proud to share with your family with with your grandson <laughs> in, yes, uh, in the future. So, yeah, because compared to other commercial projects, it's all about selling, all about revenue, all things like that. So it's 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 not, uh, it's still quite quite good, but it's not as um, as humble, exciting as, as this one. So, yeah, I think, yeah, you, you guys did a great job on this. And personally, I feel... Um, uh, people get used to scanning um, the the, uh, the the poster and also quite um, um, already have the have the habits of 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 using the app. So which is uh, uh, yeah, I think what we did much better uh, here in New Zealand. Um, I don't want to ask more questions because. Uh, feel that you already prepared some answers. So, Stephen and uh, Chloe, do you have anything you want to talk or discuss uh, rather than me asking questions or any anything from you guys? Um, I think one of the questions that my friends ask me the most, which might be useful for the listeners, is like, how does Bluetooth work and how do location posters work? Like, mm. what actually happens when I scan a poster? Yeah. Because for the majority of people, hopefully you know, won't get an alert and you won't actually see the, like, hours and hours of design <laughs> and yeah. development that we've done on the other side of the other side of the fence. So yeah. um, essentially how it works is... When you scan a poster, um, it gets recorded onto your phone the same way you're like writing into a book. Mm. Um, and you have that diary in there that everyone can see. If um, there is an outbreak in a location, the National Contact Tracing System and the contact tracers, um, there's, if there's a case, they then telephone the person and they write down um, where they've gone so it's a manual contact tracing process with the with the case um, and the locations they've been to get sent out as like a broadcast because we the system behind has no idea who scanned where because the only place the hmm. where you've scanned is stored is on your phone so yeah. it works a bit like a radio so you broadcast like the, do you have this um, there is this location and without getting too technical it's yeah you say these are locations and these are the times that they were mm -hmm. so your phone sort of matches it and figures out do I have this on my records mm. and if you do then a notification will come through to tell you that you've been alerted um, Bluetooth is slightly different um, Bluetooth is um, more anonymized so actually contact tracers don't know when you've received a Bluetooth alert Bluetooth mm. is sort of automatic and I guess the analogy I would describe this to I guess my mum would be um, 
would be like shaking hands. So Bluetooth had the, has the ability to understand like mm. what other Bluetooth devices are around you, which is why it's important to switch it on. Um, so um, let's say my phone is sort of kind of shaking hands with your phone at the moment. Um, the Bluetooth signal calculates sort of how far you are and how long you were shaking hands with that person. Mm. And it... Um, and it sort of records locally just on your phone like what hands it's shaken and for an added privacy your hands change um, over time so um, when if, if, if I become ill um, I then upload onto the, the service um, without the contact tracers even knowing all of my hands in the past 14 days or all of mm. my hands 14 days from symptom onset date and the same sort of matching process happens it gets broadcasted out and every phone then says have I shaken this hand have I shaken this hand and there's no identifiable information because a hand in this analogy is a random string of like just numbers and letters mm. that changes um, throughout your day so kind of that's the sort of behind the scenes how it works and you get a push notification saying please contact the contact tracers so that they can trace you because you've been in enough of a proximity with someone to actually mm. um, be at risk of um, getting it yeah that's a perfect example and i think you did a great job on follow the richard Feynman's <laughs> principle of explaining something that quite complex to to your grandma or to your grandson yeah and everyone who's listening please turn on the bluetooth so that's that's the takeaway and uh stephen do you have anything like you really want to share with something related to the project or design anything um i think related to the project probably just say a plea for everyone out there <laughs> to uh, yeah if you if you don't have the app yet please download it yeah um, hopefully from the conversation here it's uh, helped to shed some light on how it helps contact tracers work faster um, and ultimately you know help us all stay out of lockdown mm. um, so yeah please please scan in where wherever you go and see a um, COVID nineteen poster and please turn Bluetooth on. Um, and yeah, always uh, for very keen keen to hear feedback. Right. And it, yeah. So thank you guys, and, and thank you for listening. So if you are uh, here in New Zealand, like what we mentioned, please download the app, turn on Bluetooth, and keep it update. Scan uh, the poster. Yeah, and be safe. <laughs> stay. Yeah, stay healthy. Yeah, things like that. So really. Um, really appreciate uh, Chloe and uh, Stephen's time for this and um, if you have any feedback around the app or uh, around the, uh, um, this experience uh, feel free to share it and you can write a review on the uh, on the App Store or Google Google's, Google Shop, uh, Google shop. Mm -hmm. and also probably would be good to check Rush website if you want to know more yeah that's that's great. Thank you. Cool. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you, thank Ben. You. To wrap up this episode, I would like to share a quote from Dr. Ashley Bloomfield, Director General of Health. He said, By signing up to this app, you are helping to keep yourself and family safer and supporting New Zealand to stop the spread of COVID-19. This will ensure 
we can all return to do the things we enjoy as soon as possible. I want to say thanks to the people who worked hard to make this app available, and I think we should also thank to the people who's using it, who's sharing the feedback to help the team to improve it. It's not a perfect solution for all people's problems, and there's not such a thing exist as a perfect solution. But I'm so impressed. To see this great example of how technology and design can actually improve millions of people's lives and save maybe thousands, millions of people's lives, this makes me feel really positive, even with so many uncertainties around us. If you want to hear more similar discussions, please subscribe Bear Academy podcast. If you like it or have something to say. Please review the podcast on iTunes, and I also have a YouTube channel shares videos on tech design productivity. You can check and subscribe it for more content. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode, this interview as I did. I'll see you again in the next one. Cheers, bye.